16th chapter of 1 Corinthians is where we are to this point. We've, we've been studying 1 Corinthians for 12 months nearly. And we've come to this passage that we'll deal with in verses, from verses 13 through 20. Last Sunday night, the subject was discipleship. And tonight, the subject is disciples. Skevington Wood has a book entitled The Inextinguishable Blaze. It's a, it's a book very much like F.F. Bruce's book, The Searching Flame, which is a commentary or a, a treatment of the book of Acts. And the theme of these books is that the church, as it began to spread, was a flame that could not be extinguished, could not be put out. And in the natural progression of, that, of the church in the book of Acts and in history, there were certain terms and words and doctrines that were forged out of the process of the expansion of that church that have become very familiar terms and, and words and doctrines to us today, but were not familiar in that time at all. For example, there, there wasn't for a long time a word, a name for the people who were followers of Jesus. Now we know those people today as Christians, but that wasn't true in, in the beginning. There was no real word for those who were followers of Christ that really stuck. Before we get to this chapter, I'd like for you to turn to the second chapter of the book of Acts. Well, let me show you something. What I'm trying to um, establish, the second chapter of the book of Acts, which is really the um, record, the beginning of the record of the birth of the church. And in the second chapter, verse 41, it tells about those who were baptized and received, received the word and were baptized. And it says in verse 42 that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' doctrine and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer, four things that were going on in the church. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Verse 44 is the first title that was given to the followers of Jesus. It says, and all those who had believed were together. So the first title that was given to a follower of Christ in the, in the church age was that he was a believer. Now if you'll turn the page to Acts 4.32, you'll see the expansion of that group of people who were called believers, chapter four, verse 32. And they were called a congregation, that is an assembly of believers. Turn two pages to the sixth chapter of the book of Acts, verse one. It says that they were called disciples. Now in reality, the first 12 who were followers of Jesus, who were called disciples, were now called apostles. And these disciples, as verse two of chapter six indicates, that they became a large congregation of those who were following Jesus. And those 12 from the beginning were called apostles. 
if you'll turn the page to chapter eight, verse one, those followers of Christ were called the church in Jerusalem. And if you'll turn the page to chapter nine, verse one, it says, it denotes them as people of the way. They had turned from their way to his way. Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And they left his own way and became a follower of the way, the way of Jesus. Then the 11th chapter of Acts, verse 26, says that these disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. We make the full cycle to where we want to be tonight. These disciples were called Christians so that a Christian is a disciple of Jesus Christ. A Christian is a disciple. Now the word disciple is a word that means a definite follower of Christ. Now when, when Jesus walked on earth, there, were these, there was a large group of people who followed him as spectators and, and curiosity seekers and miracle um, seekers. But there were those in that inner group who were the disciples of Jesus. That is what he's talking about. A Christian is a definite follower of Christ. The word means learner, but it means more than that. It means to learn for the purpose of emulating one. So that a Christian, follow me, a Christian is one who is a learner, a follower of Jesus Christ, and he learns in order to be like him. Now, I suppose that almost everybody here tonight would say I'm a Christian. Most people here are probably Christian. I'm a Christian. And we take that name and we use it for you know, for um, everybody who's not a pagan or every evangelical. A Christian is a follower of Jesus who has, who has committed his life to the, to the scripture in order that he might emulate Jesus Christ, in order that he might be like him in order that he might be example, the example of him. Now, a, a disciple of, of, of Darwin is one who learns the teaching of Darwin and becomes an evolutionist. He is a disciple of Darwin and he emulates the teaching of evolution. A disciple of Marx or Lenin is a learner of, the, of, of Marx and Lenin and is called a communist. A Christian is a person who has committed his life to, to learn Jesus Christ in order that he might emulate him and his teaching. Now, there are seven commands in this passage of scripture for disciples, seven commands. You got your worksheet, we'll go from there. Now I want to say some, some, some things from general observation. The first is that the first five commands of, 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 of these seven commands have to do with how a disciple is to act in the world. And the other two commands have to do with how a disciple is to react to those within the body of Christ. So how he is to act in the world and how he is to react to those in the body of Christ. The first six of these commands are in a tense that means keep on doing what you're now doing so that the Apostle Paul is not telling them something brand new. He understood that these people understood what it meant to be a follower of Christ from the very beginning. And he's just encouraging them 
to keep up what they knew they should be doing from the start. All right, first command is found in verse 13, and, and the command is, be on the alert, verse 13 of chapter 16, be on the alert, be awake, be discerning. 14 times Jesus used this term with his disciples, be discerning, be discerning, be sensitive. Somebody said that there are three classes of people in the world. There are those who are making things happen, there are those who watch things happen, and there are those who, have the, have, who haven't the slightest idea of what's happening. Now, now, Jesus was very emphatic to his disciples that he wanted them to have an awareness, a sensitivity, a discernment, an awareness of themselves and others, an awareness of need before that need is declared, a sensitivity to those around uh, them. What frightens me today is this movement toward isolationism. I see it in the body politic. I see it in the church, a movement toward isolationism. Now, Jim and Wanda Onan in Wadsworth, Illinois, decided they wanted a house like nobody else had. And so they made them a 7,000 square foot pyramid and covered it with 24 karat gold. And around that house, they built a moat and stocked it with sharks. Now that is a house that nobody else has. Now what they were saying is what many of us have felt, don't step on my territory, I don't wanna be bothered by anybody. Are you aware? Are you sensitive? Are you discerning? Are you aware, for example, of what kind of child God has given you? Proverbs says, train up a child in his way. Are you aware, are you, are you sensitive to the needs and the hurts of your wife or husband? Can you sit down tonight and write five things without hesitation about which you are consciously concerned? Can you honestly and intelligently pray for one family in this church because you are consciously aware and care about their needs? Are you a discerning person? Somebody said the saddest words ever spoken were, I never saw you. I can just see the rich man pleading his case before Abraham. And Abraham says, why there was a poor beggar at your gate covered with sores who was starving for even the crumbs. And, Lazarus, and the rich man says, I never saw him. And Abraham said, that's the problem. And Jesus said, I, I was naked and you clothed me not. I was hungry and you fed me not. And the cry went up, when saw we thee hungry? And when saw we thee naked? And Jesus said, that's the problem. That we go through life with a kind of a uncaring, insensitive isolation. A disciple is a person who is discerning, who is sensitive, who is alert, who is aware. Second command, stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in the faith. Now, in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul said, 
I preached the gospel and you received it, and in that gospel you stand. That's what he, he's talking about, standing firm. It means to be unmovable, to stand alone, to stand tall, to stand without, without moving. It is, to, it is to have conviction. It is to develop integrity. It is to, it is to bring truth into life and to stand on it. It is to take a stand. Third command, act like men. He says, play the part of a man. In other words, he's saying, be an adult. He's saying, grow up. Now I want you to turn with me something interesting that I observed not long ago to the third chapter of 1 Corinthians. I want you to turn back to that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I mean, let me begin reading at verse 1. It says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, as to grown-up, mature men, women, but as to carnal, as to men of flesh, as to babes in Christ. He said, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not yet able to receive it. Now, I want to stop right there because in these verses and in the, in, the, in the last verses of chapter two, he describes the three kinds of folk, three kinds of people. There the, there's the natural man, that is the unsaved man. That are, there is the spiritual man, that is the person whose life is controlled by the Holy Spirit. And then there is the carnal Christian, that is the baby who has never grown up. Now, I had never noticed before that there is a fourth category. That is, the baby, in the spiritual baby who has not grown up because he has chosen not to grow up. Now, there are two kinds of babes in Christ here tonight. There's a babe in Christ here who is a brand new Christian. You, you're not able to receive. Uh, solid food. And, and the Apostle Paul has nothing against that. He has nothing against you because you haven't had time and exposure to spiritual truth and so you're still a babe in Christ and you've not grown. But there's another kind of babe in Christ here tonight and that's the one he's talking about at the end of verse 2 when he says, indeed, even now you are not yet able. And the implication is that you've had plenty of time to grow up as a Christian, but you haven't. There's no excuse for that. Now I hear people kind of smug, smugly, kind of shrug their shoulders and laugh it off and say, well, you had to give me milk and I, you know, I'm still on the milk stage. That's the, about the worst thing that could ever be said about you as a Christian. There is no excuse tonight that you're having to be taught and cannot teach, many of you. There is no excuse tonight for many of you to still be a babe in Christ except for the very fact that you are apathetic and indifferent and don't care to grow. You are yet still a babe. And Paul said, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, grow up and act like a man. Mature. Fourth command. 
Be strong, he says. Keep on being strong. The Apostle Paul prayed that we might be strengthened with all might in the inner man. Now, it's one thing to be strong physically, outwardly. It is another thing to have inner strength. Now, I remember when I was a kid growing up, you got comic books, and at the back of those comic books, you're, you know, I, I can tell when I say this how, many, how old you are. At the back of those comic books, it had this page about Charles Atlas. Showed Charles Atlas out there on the beach, you know, and here's this skinny guy, and, and this bully comes up there and kicks dirt in his face. Charles Atlas, you know, has this uh, thing you can write off and get this... Uh, a book and, and, and all that's necessary to be a muscular, uh, I mean, you know, you, 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 nobody's going to kick sand in your face if you write Charles Atlas and get enrolled in the Charles Atlas bodybuilding program. And I was one of the, uh, I, I was one of the uh, uh, boys that got the sand kicked in the face. I, I, and it was on the beach much, but I, I was of that category. And I can remember just longing to get into the Charles Atlas bodybuilding program because I wanted to do some sand kicking of my own. And, and, and I can remember uh, going and talking to my mother about that. And we, we, we didn't have that much money to spend on Charles Atlas bodybuilding program. And so you know what kind of a reception I got from my mother. After she stopped laughing, you know, she, she, she kind of reminded me that we didn't have money to send off to Charles Atlas. She reminded me something else. She reminded me that it takes... ...people's artist conceptions of Simon Peter, rough, rugged, raw-boned fisherman, with all that, with that great physique. And he was the little, he was the man who ran before the little lady. How strong are you morally? I mean, how, when everybody else caves in, do you cave in? How, when peer pressure comes, how strong are you there? When moral temptation comes, how strong are you there? The Apostle Paul said that we might be strengthened with all might in the inner man so that there is strength from within, strength from the inside. It takes more muscles to live for God than it does to kick sand in folks' face. Remember Irma Bombeck? It's worth reading again. Listen to this. Ironically, these two events happened within a day of each other. On the first Saturday of last month, a 22-year-old tennis player hoisted a silver bowl over his head at center court at Wimbledon. On the day before, five blind mountain climbers, one man with an artificial leg, an epileptic, and two deaf, deaf mountaineers stood atop the snow-capped summit of Mount Rainier. It was a noisy victory for the tennis player who shared it with 14,000 fans, some of whom had slept on the sidewalk outside the club for six nights waiting for tickets. 
It was a quiet victory for the climbers who led their own cheering. There was a lot of rhetoric exchanged at Wimbledon regarding bad calls. At Mount Rainier, they learned to live with life's bad calls a long time ago. The first man to reach the mountaintop tore up his artificial leg in getting there. Somehow in all of this, Irma Bombeck says, I see a parallel that all Americans are gonna to have to come to grips with. In our search for heroes and heroines, we often lose our perspective. We applaud beauty pageant winners and we ignore the woman without limbs who paints pictures with a brush in her teeth. We extol the courage of a man who will, who will sail over 10 cars on a motorcycle. We give no thought or parking space to the man who treads his way through life in a world of darkness and silence. Not all winners are heroes. Not all handicapped people are heroes. Hero is a term that should be awarded to those who given a set of circumstances react with courage, dignity, decency, and compassion. People who make us feel better for having seen or touched them. I think the crowds went to the wrong summit and cheered the wrong champion. Don't you? Be strong. I mean have some guts that will stand when nobody else will stand. There's a fifth command. We'll make it through here in just a minute. He says, let all things be done, verse 14, in love. Let all things be done in love. Now, that's the theme of 1 Corinthians. We, we found that over and over again as we've come through here. As a matter of fact, in chapter 12, he said, desire a more excellent way. And he comes to to chapter 13, he says, I can have all these things and do all these things and have not love and it profits me nothing. Does your family know any more about love from you than they did a year ago? The resistance to love must break the heart of God. Do all things with love. You see, we can be alert, command number one, but if we don't have love, what we are is suspicious and paranoid. And we can stand firm in the faith, but if we don't have love, we become narrow and bigoted and prejudiced. And, and, and we, can be a, we can act like men and, 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 and play the part of a mature Christian, but if we don't have love, we become intellectual snobs and we can be strong but if we don't have love, we don't have tenderness or gentleness. Everything must be done in love. Do you really love? Somebody said to be loved is, means that your ideas are taken seriously. You can tell what you think and you feel, why you feel that way because somebody really cares. You can tell your desires anything you want to because you feel safe. You know that nobody's going to destroy you out of their prejudices. Can I ask you a question? Are you prejudiced, critical, temperamental and choosy and spoiled? How many people know you as somebody who really loves? 
a disciple of Jesus Christ is a lover. And Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. There are two more commands that have to do with our reaction to those in the body. Verses 15 and 18. The first is that we, in verses 15 and 18, that we be in, ex, in, in subjection to one another. It says to acknowledge one another, acknowledge them. The word means respect those uh, in, in thought and in life. And he names them. He names three men. Those three men happen to be the men that brought the letter from Corinth to him. In the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, we found Stephanus as the man who opened up his house and it became a house where the church met. And what Paul is saying is that here are these men in the church that you need to respect and acknowledge and subject to. Subjection in the sense of the relinquishment of my right to control. Do you respect those people? that God has given the church. I read somewhere the other day, said, I'll tell you how to get rid of your preacher. I mean, you grabbing your pencils right now, and, and, and you've never taken notes before, you'll take now. I'll tell you how to get rid of your preacher, he said. First thing to do, look him straight in the eye and say amen when he preaches, and he'll preach himself to death. <laughs> he said, secondly, he said, compliment him on the great work he's doing, and he'll work himself to death. Or he said, commit your life to Jesus Christ, just sell out to God and start living for the Lord and he'll die of a heart attack. <laughs> and he said, or fourth, he said, begin to pray for him and pray for him every day and he'll make such an impact on the community, a bigger and better church will come and get him away. Respect and subject. It's amazing to me when you read through that passage over there in Ephesians that talks about being filled with the Spirit and how to live in the Spirit-filled life in the body of Christ, underlining all of that is that command, be subject to one another. And then there's one other command that I'm having a hard time with. It's greet one another with a holy kiss, verse 20. <laughs> Now, I was reading my Baptist Standard. Now, Baptist Standard is the Baptist paper from Texas this week. It just so happened. And I lost that sucker, but I was going to, it's absolutely the most hilarious thing in there. But they have a deal kind of like Dear Abby, it's Dear John. And you write to John Drakeford. He's a psychologist who teaches over at Southwestern Seminary. And this, this, these letters were in there this week about this kissing deacon. And he said, I am absolutely fed up with this kissing deacon who thinks he's God's gift to womanhood. And because and every time we come to church, he wants to kiss everybody, he says. And this lady said, he comes to my house. This guy comes to my house when my husband's not there and says, the Bible says that we're to greet one another with a holy kiss, and I've come to kiss you. <laughs> and he said, tries to kiss me on the mouth and says, I just praise the Lord and I've been able to, 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 to reject, you know. To, well, I don't think that's what Paul had in mind when he said, greet one another with a holy kiss. I think what Paul had in mind was this. 
that there is such love in the church where there are true disciples of Christ that we feel absolutely no compunction, we feel absolutely no embarrassment in the embrace of the believer in the church. The touch and the embrace, can't you just see those Christians coming from the catacombs and the suffering and the hardship to Stephanus' house where the church met and just embracing one another. They were so glad to see one another. They loved each other so much. I regret that that day is long gone from many of our churches. Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Then it doesn't bother you to reach over and touch and say to somebody, I have a love for you in the Lord and I want you to know I do. It was a dear thing happened to me just a while ago. As we started out of my office to go up to the baptistry, this dear father, this daughter, was baptized tonight, said, I'm not much on words, but I just want to tell you, I love you. And I, I, I wasn't offended by that. I know it's our day, in our day and time, we kind of cringe when a man says that, but I was made to feel such a joy to know that somebody does indeed feel like saying, I love you, and really mean it. And that's something that we crave and long and desire. A lady came into my office, not from this town, not even this church, not from this town. Sat out in my office Friday afternoon and said, I don't know why I'm here except I want you to tell me how I can feel loved. I just don't know how to receive love. And I sensed in her a real hunger for somebody to reach out really help her to know that she's loved. That's what it means to greet one another with a holy kiss. Let's pray together. Father, most of us, I think, pastor and people included, we call ourselves Christians, but we're really not disciples. We've heard these commands and every one of them has spoken to our need and has reminded us of what we're not. And we remember, we remember what Jesus said, that the world will be known by its hatred and the disciple will be known by his love. Genuine and pure and godly a love that's sensitive to needs before they're declared, a love for God that's so strong that it stands with strength when it wants to fall. 
a love that respects and subjects. God, give us that kind of heart, that kind of love, that kind of church. This is my prayer for myself and for my people. In Jesus' name. Now I think we, may, we need to have a moment of invitation. The, the goal of every sermon is not that the sermon be presented, but that the decision be made in invitation. There may be some tonight who have never declared their faith in Jesus Christ, who would like to come and do that, just like that child that was baptized tonight, just trusting in Jesus, then calling home, telling mother and dad from camp. Or there might be some who need to come tonight to join our church or to, be, to rededicate their life to Christ, to follow as a disciple, a true disciple of Jesus. Whatever reason God leads you to come, I'll invite you to do His will right away. We'll sing two stanzas, then we'll through. We'll stand to come.